We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning, looking at verses 15 through 20. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If you're here with us last week, uh, you'll remember from our, our passage in Colossians 1 that uh, we saw Paul's prayer that these Colossian Christians would be filled and strengthened with the knowledge of God. Then, as if answering his, his own prayer, Paul praises Jesus through words that can't do anything but fill us and strengthen us in the knowledge of God. And that's what we're going to look at today. Some scholars believe this passage is perhaps a quotation from some ancient hymn. Maybe some of your Bibles even have it formatted as poetry. That may be true. But whatever the case, we've moved now beyond introductions as Paul launches into this description of Jesus that stands as one of the most majestic descriptions of Jesus in all the Bible. In a way, I, I feel like I've hit like the preaching jackpot <laughs> getting this passage this morning. It's, it's, it's amazing. Paul takes the most magnificent person in the universe and he just lifts him up before us. And he, he, he turns him around like a diamond just so we can see the many facets of Jesus. So let's read it now. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. This is God's word. Here's how a passage like this really helps us. We live our days mired in the details of life, don't we? We go to work. We get the kids ready for school. We go to school ourselves. We do our chores. We watch TV and so on. And throughout our day, we are just bombarded with news and information and details and stuff. We walk around with, with our heads down. <laughs> we look at our screens. We look at what's in front of us. And all the stuff of life starts to weigh heavy upon us. Or at least it does on me. Our vision gets, gets small and focused and before long, we start redefining our life according to what we see right in front of us. And that can lead to all kinds of problems. Small things become big things. Anxiety grows. Wrong, inflated views of ourselves increase. We start to define life on our terms. The, the, the more inward-focused we get the more out-of-focus ultimate reality gets. We start to believe something other than Jesus is at the center of the universe. And then we come to a passage like this. And we're confronted with a God so big and so mighty and so glorious that we start to think, we start to rethink what ultimately really matters. We start to see that ultimate reality is not what we make it. Ultimate reality is who God is. 
So who is he? This passage tells us. And I'll say we're going to organize it in, in kind of three buckets, three points. I got a three-point sermon. I always have a three-point sermon. I can't get away from it. Here are the three points. The supremacy of Jesus, the leadership of Jesus, and the reconciliation of Jesus. And just so you know, as we walk through each one of these points, my first point is as long as the final two points. <laughs> so when we get to point two, don't think, oh, we're just now to point two. It's intentional. There's a reason. So let's just dive in. The supremacy of Jesus. Verses 15 through 17. Let's not forget the context here. The Colossians were confronted with destructive teaching about Christianity, about Jesus, about his sufficiency. And Paul is writing this letter to them to defeat that wrong teaching, to confront that wrong teaching. So how did he do that? How was he going to do it? By lifting up Jesus for the church to see. It's a good strategy. That's always the best way. When we see Jesus it actually becomes pretty easy to see wrong theology. But when we take our eyes off of Jesus, all kinds of wrong things can slip into our minds and find a home there. What these Colossians needed and what we need, and we always need this, is a really big vision of the glorious Jesus. We need to see how sufficient he really is for everything. We don't need anything else. Jesus is enough. When we start thinking something else is better, something else is, is needed in our life to take us to that next level, whatever that might be, we need to come back and just stare at Jesus. Sometimes we have to stare for a while. A pastor I once had said, stare at the glory of God until you see it. So let's start staring at him. We'll take it just bit by bit. Look at the first half of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. This isn't the only place in the Bible we see this kind of language. John said something similar in the opening chapter of his gospel. He said, No one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. You flip over to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 uses a similar phrase when he, the author refers to Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Then, if that's not enough, we have Jesus himself saying in John chapter 14, verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So what does it mean that Jesus is the image of God? It means that Jesus represents God. He shows us who God is. How does he do that? Well, I have four children. Two of them back there, two of them are in the kids' hall. Two of them kind of take after me. Two of them look like Sarah. And they even kind of split up that way. When it's time to separate cars, the two that look like me go with me, the two that look like Sarah go with her. It's funny. I don't know why they do that, but they do. Andy, for example, is basically the spitting image of me at his age. You take him, you take a picture of me. Is that the same person? Is that what Paul means? That Jesus looks like the Father? Well, yes and no. <laughs> We can't say that in the physical sense because God the Father is invisible. Paul says that. He is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus must image him in another way. What way? In his essence. In his righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom, his power, his holiness. All of those invisible attributes that we know to be true of God, Jesus images. 
Now, in a way, I think that this helps us see the point even more clearly. I mean, if my son looks like me, you can say he's an image of me, but that's only surface level, right? Do we share the same temperament, the same personality? Are we really the same or do we just look the same? Are we the same person underneath our skin? Well, with Jesus, Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father, the answer is yes, they are the same person. They are the same. Everything that God is, Jesus also is. He just puts a face on God in the Incarnation. Jesus shows us God because, here's the point, He is God. Jesus is God. When we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. In Jesus, God becomes very definite to us, doesn't he? In Jesus, we can point to a specific person who lived in real space and time. We can see what he's like, how he interacted with this, with this world, what he did in this world, who he really was and who he really is. You know, the name God, it's used all the time, isn't it? All kinds of religions Use the name of God. But what do we mean when we talk about God? How do we know we're all talking about the same God? The answer is who we say Jesus is. Is he God? If the God we talk about doesn't look like Jesus, then it's not the God of the Bible that we're talking about. The Bible makes it clear, if you accept Jesus, you accept God. And if you don't accept Jesus, you don't accept God. No more than any other person is, God is not someone that we get to define. He defines himself. He reveals himself in the visible Jesus. Now, Jesus is also the image of God in another way. Think back to the beginning of the Bible. When God created everything. In what way did he create man and woman? In his image. Our sin now uh, it kind of messed that up a little bit. <laughs> we're, we're, not, uh, we're not very good image bearers, are we? But what about Jesus? The Bible tells us he never sinned. But in the incarnation, as the eternal God stepped into our world and took on flesh, he became the perfect image of God in the Genesis sense as well. He became the perfect image bearer that we have failed to be. So Jesus is both the image of the invisible God in that sense, and in the, the perfect image of humanity, of that which was made in God's image. So you could say we have a, a, this double blessing when we look at Jesus. We see God as he truly is, and we see ourselves as we were intended to be and as, in, as one day we will be in him. We see God because Jesus is God. We see ourselves as we will one day be because Jesus in his humanity became the perfect image bearer and showed us who we will become in him by the power of his resurrection. So as we, as we follow Jesus, we are, not following, we, we, are, we are following God and he is making us more our true selves in our humanity. He... he he, he gives us our humanity back. But redeemed, restored, who we most want to be. By the way, this is, this is how we find our truest self. There's a lot of people looking for their authentic selves today, aren't there? There always has been. How do we find it? We find it by following Jesus. 
and letting him give us our humanity back. Paul goes on. Look at the second half of verse 15. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. This is an easy phrase to misunderstand. People have misunderstood it all the time. What's Paul saying? Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus is the first created being? The the, the first to roll off the line in God's creation. Is that what he means? That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses would say today. But that's not, that's not even a new heresy. Uh, it's, it's actually a really old one. <laughs> In the fourth century, there was a man named Arius who denied the deity of Jesus by asserting that there was a time when the Son did not exist. In his desire to protect monotheism, he said that while God has always existed, the Son has not. There was a point at which the Father became a Father. He didn't deny the holiness of Jesus. He just denied the the infinity, the equality of Jesus with the Father. Now, if we look at the Bible, the Bible is clearly presenting God as a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But to Arius... The Trinity was not an eternal reality. This heresy uh, is known as Arianism after Arius. And it was one that, that spread around the ancient world in the fourth century. And eventually, um, the Christians in the East and the West kind of convened at the Council of Nicaea to talk about, to hash this out. It was that important. Who is Jesus, really? Is he God, or is he something less than God? It matters. And at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the church officially distinguished between two words that Arius was was kind of smushing together to mean the same thing. Those two words were begotten and made. Begotten, it's a biblical word. You probably recognize that word from maybe the, the, the most famous passage in all of Scripture, right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Does that mean God made Jesus? Arius thought so. But, but if that's true, it means Jesus isn't really God because He's then a creation of God and the created can never be the Creator. There can never be true equality, can there? There's a difference in nature. But the Bible does not distinguish the nature of the Son from the nature of the Father, nor from the nature of the Spirit, for that matter. The triune God is one in nature. So how did the Council of Nicaea resolve this? They resolved it by expounding on the word begotten and how it related to God the Father and God the Son. We get pretty technical here. I even thought, should I include this? But I think it's really important for us to get this right. If we want to see who Jesus really is, we need to see that he really is God, not someone lesser than him. The key distinction comes down to a doctrine known as The eternal generation of the Son. That's a good $5 theological word for you. Obviously, to be a son means to be from a father, right? But when talking about God, does it mean that the Father created the Son? Or does it mean something else? In God, this generation is... It's not a point in time where it wasn't and then it was. It is an eternal reality. We're stretching our brains here because we can't think in these these categories, I don't think, properly. But it's true. It's what the Bible is telling us. 
if Jesus was never sent into the world to save it, he would still be the Son because his sonship does not depend upon creation at all. He's eternally the Son. He is the eternal Son from the Father regardless of creation. Jesus has always existed as God with God. We see that in John chapter 1, don't we? There was never a time when the Father was not, and there was never a time when the Son was not the Son, and there was never a time when the Spirit was not the Spirit. They have always existed in that reality forever. The Son is called the Son because He's eternally generated from the Father not as a different creation of him, but from the same eternal, infinite, immutable, impassable, divine essence of God. To affirm Jesus as he really is requires that we affirm his whole divinity. He's of the same essence as God the Father, and as God the Spirit. They hashed all this out of the Council of Nicaea. Whatever we might think of ancient people, <laughs> we can't say they were dumb, can we? I mean, this is hard stuff. At the Council of Nicaea, they wrote the Nicene Creed. That's one of the most important statements of faith in all of church history. If you aren't familiar with it, I would encourage you to go home and look it up. Read through it. Think about it. It's amazing. That creed says, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Sounds like Colossians 1, doesn't it? God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. These dear people of the Council of Nicaea really thought through who Jesus is. And they used passages like Colossians 1, 15, to come to these conclusions. Now, I say all that in a way, it's kind of a sidebar to our text today, but it's important that we understand that Jesus was not a created being. Jesus was not made. Jesus is the eternal God. And I think there's other clues in our text today that that point us in that same direction. I couldn't help but notice a phrase in verses 15, 17, and 18. He is. There's a thousand different ways to say something. He is is pretty definite. He is the image of God. He is before all things. He is the head of the body. Jesus is. Not was or one day will be. He is. He has existed eternally with the Father and the Spirit in the person of the Son. And just as we hear God say in the Old Testament, I am who I am, Jesus says, I am who I am. He is. So, if Paul isn't saying that Jesus is the first created being, then what is he saying? He's using that firstborn language in the sense of of priority, as it would have been used in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if you were the firstborn, everything was yours by right. I was telling my kids that this morning on on the way. I was like, Jack, you're the firstborn. If this was back then, everything would be yours. doesn't matter about those other kids. Oh, that's cool. That's what Paul means. Everything belongs to Jesus by right as the eternal Son. 
And because he is God, he is also ruler and creator of it all. Which is why Paul says in verse 16, and notice the prepositions here, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. If all things, and by all, you know what Paul means? All, <laughs> everything, all things. If all things were created by him and through him, he cannot be among those all things as a created being. Then it wouldn't really be all things. It would be all other things. But Paul doesn't say that. Jesus stands above all as God. Notice that Paul, he even tells us what Jesus stands above, doesn't he? He includes heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He doesn't leave anything out, does he? As Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all his. Jesus is supreme over it all. Jesus rules heaven just as he rules earth. Jesus rules over things we can't even see just as the things he, just as he rules over the things that we can see. I, there are things in the depths of our oceans no human eye has ever seen. We don't even know what's really there. Jesus rules over that. There are things in the expanse of space we can't even fathom, probably. Jesus is supreme over that. There is no power anywhere in this universe Bigger than Jesus. He stands over it all. We owe all we have and all we see and all that we are and all that is to Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the universe, the Lord of all. So as Paul says in verse 17, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Right now, you're sitting as a person in a chair, in a room. All of this matter filled with atoms. There is space in there. I don't know about you, but if there's space between me and the floor, I'm going to fall. There's a law of gravity. God has designed the world in such a way, and Jesus is upholding all of those laws right now, this very moment. I can barely keep my own life together. And he's doing all of that throughout all of this universe. That's amazing. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Without Jesus upholding, all things. As the author of Hebrews says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I don't even know what that means, and I've been looking at that for about 15 years. It's too big for me. Without Jesus, this entire universe ceases to exist. Without his active involvement, it ceases to exist. As John Calvin once said, if God should withdraw his hand even a little, all things would immediately perish and dissolve into nothing. Jesus is big, isn't he? I don't know what you thought about Jesus coming in here this morning, but he's big. Now, we're going to move on in a minute, but I want you to see one more thing before we move on. Notice it says, all things were created not only by him and through him, but also what? For him. 
let's personalize this a minute. When we're talking about the bigness of, 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 of Jesus, it, 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 it really helps us. But that bigness, it's for us too. You were created for Jesus. You were. Not someone else that you think is better than you. Not those who deserve it, according to your definition of deserve. Not those who you think of of as good or holy or righteous. But you. (laughs) The very real you sitting in this very real room with your very real problems, with your very, very real failures and needs and even sins. You were created for Jesus. He cares about you because you belong to him. I, I think of my son Jack. I didn't, I, I didn't tell him I was going to say this this morning because I just thought of it, but he carries around these baseball cards all the time. You got any with you right now, Jack? No? Okay. He cares about them a whole lot. <laughs> he's protecting them. He's, he's you know, Everywhere they go, he's making sure they're okay. He didn't even create those. If a little boy can do that with baseball cards, what do you think Jesus is doing with you? He cares. Your life has meaning, and that meaning, here's here's really good news, that meaning is not defined by you. It's defined by Jesus. You aren't ultimately in charge of your life, and I hope you hear that as good news. Jesus is ultimately in charge of your life. Because you were created for him. And he loves you. Jesus is supreme. He will always be enough. If you are a Christian, there is nothing else you need but Jesus. And if you are not a Christian, there is nothing else you need but Jesus. He is all in all. He's the goal and the purpose and the joy of life. So that's the supremacy of Jesus. Next, the leadership of Jesus. Verse 18. Jesus is not only creator and ruler of all, he is also the leader of all, specifically the leader of worldwide redemption. In verse 18, we, we, we zoom in from all of creation to a specific new creation in Jesus, the church. Paul picks up a common biblical metaphor for the church, a body. Jesus is the head of that body. Now, this is fascinating to me. (laughs) That glorious Jesus we just talked about, who is supreme over all created things, chooses something in particular in this world to inhabit, to be head over, to lead. What is it? The church? Of all things that he could inhabit, Jesus chose the church. I mean, think of all the governments with worldwide influence. Think of all the famous, impressive people. Think of all the nations expanding throughout the world. Think of all the power structures that exist. And what does Jesus choose to be the head of? What is his body? The church. Would you choose the church? Jesus did. Here's what that means. If you are a member of Christ's church, and I use uh, church in, in the big C church sense, 
God's worldwide global church. You are a member of Christ's body. Just like you have a body, Christ has a body. Which means you are joined to the one supreme Lord of all, and He has chosen you to be a part of His cosmic plan in His own body. Your, what you think of as a very small, very regular, very ordinary church life is not so small and regular and ordinary as you might think. It's as big as Jesus is. That's amazing to me. This is more than us just sitting here, singing some songs and listening to a speech We are joined to the living Christ. He is doing something among us. We are his body. He's he's caring for us even right now. We have to keep reading to see what this, this, this really means, I think. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Again, we have this this firstborn language. What does it mean here? In coming to earth, Jesus was bringing something new into the world. Something of which he would be the first of. The beginning of. The church. Think of the storyline of the Bible. God created the world and placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then what happened? They sinned. They cut themselves off from God, and God banished them from the garden as a result. And then from that day forward, the world has just continued in sin. But God did not give up on this world. He did not give up on His people. He planned to send the Son to redeem and restore this broken world and to create a new creation called the church through which His plan of redemption would flow out into the darkness of the world. He was going to fix the world, if I could say it this boldly, through the church. His body, because he's the head of this. How did that new creation come about? When Jesus came to earth, he came as the new Adam. The Bible talks about this. Ladies, when you get to Romans 5 in your Bible study, you'll see this. Great passage. As the new Adam, Jesus came to undo all of the effects of sin the effects of the fall. So, when he went into the wilderness after his baptism, what did he do? He cast Satan out by the power of his word, didn't he? He did what Adam should have done, but failed to do. When Jesus touched the sick and healed them, what was he doing? He was undoing the effects of sin and death. He was bringing wholeness back into the world. When Jesus rejected temptation and stayed faithful to God, what was he doing? He was living the life that no human ever did. Theologians call all of that the active obedience of Christ. And without it, we have no hope. We need it. We need him to do what we could not. But there's another obedience of Christ to which this passage pushes us. The passive obedience of Christ. His death on a cross. When Jesus went to the cross, what was he doing? He was fulfilling the sacrificial system, dying on our behalf to pay for our sins and to bring us back to God. And three days later, when he rose from the grave, he became the firstborn from the dead. That doesn't mean he became the first person to ever be raised from the dead. Jesus himself raised Lazarus, right? So it can't mean that. What it means, Jesus became the firstborn of this new creation, of this glorified creation, of this new age. The new creation of God was coming through the death of Jesus. As the firstborn of the dead, Jesus ushers in the new age of man, one where where glorified bodies do not grow tired or sick or die, 
where the life we were intended to live, it's given back to us, but restored, redeemed, better even than if the Garden of Eden were just to continue on as it was. This isn't a a zombie Jesus merely coming back from the dead to live in this kind of half-life existence. This is the redeeming Jesus ushering in new, abundant life as it was meant to be. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of that new creation. It's the spark that sets the world on fire. And what did it take? It took his death. The preeminence of Jesus comes not only from who he is in himself, but also from the work that he has done in his death and resurrection. No one can beat him now. No one is better than him. They never were, they never will be. Sin can't beat him. Satan can't beat him. Death couldn't beat him. Jesus rules. It's really that simple. Jesus rules. And through his rule, Jesus leads his new creation, the church, using that body of his to bring the gospel to a dying world. We never know who's going to walk through those doors on Sunday. Your presence here, merely listening, engaging with God's word, says something to this world. That big gospel story is reflected in the church. Your little church life is not so little. Not at all. So that's the leadership of Jesus. Now our final point, the reconciliation of Jesus. Verses 19 and 20. This is kind of the end to which this passage takes us the reconciliation of everything to Jesus. Now, we haven't left the earthly work of Jesus in these verses. They're still firmly in mind. Paul says, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The the past tense there doesn't mean the fullness of God no longer dwells in Jesus. It does. It always has. It always will. I think we've made that clear this morning. I hope. But the work of Jesus on earth in his life, death, and resurrection is a focus here. Jesus came with the fullness of God's will and mission and purpose to do something. To do what? To reconcile all things to himself. Notice verse 20 tells us what Jesus is reconciling. All things. Again, what does all mean there? All Everything, all things reconciling to himself. The gospel of Jesus is that big. It's that massive. It's huge. It's bigger than you and me. Its effects reach all the way to everything in creation. The Bible tells us that creation waits in eager expectation, that the creation has been been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. But Jesus is reconciling it all to himself. How? This is really important. I want you to hear this. How does Jesus reconcile all things to himself? By reconciling us to himself. Us. It starts with setting humanity right with God. We are the great problem in the world. When humanity fell, the whole world fell. All of creation was affected by our sinfulness. So for the ground and the trees and the animals and the planets and everything else to be made right again, we must be made right again. We must be dealt with. Jesus must reconcile us to himself, and as he does, all things come along too. But this reconciliation doesn't just happen. Something must occur for it to come to pass. What what has to happen? The cross of Christ. Jesus made peace how? By the blood of his cross. 
why is blood? I mean, that seems drastic, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, we've talked about this big Jesus. Could he not find another way? I mean, he's over all things. Could he not find something else, some other way? The answer must be no. Because at the center of all history stands a cross. The path to heaven is paved with the blood of Jesus. It had to be this way. We need Jesus' blood to atone for our sins. And it had to be God's initiative. It had to be God's work. We could never attain reconciliation by ourselves. Our blood isn't sufficient to atone for our sins. The blood of bulls and goats isn't sufficient to atone for our sins. Only the blood of Jesus, the blood of the very perfect man, was enough. The only way we could be set right with God is for God to do exactly what he did in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not that that was merely the the best way. It was the only way. God designed it that way. There's no other way. Our sin is that big. Only Jesus could pay the price. And he did. The reconciliation of Jesus not only brings things back into, into proper order, it also gives us something that we can take hold of right now. That proper order, it will come in fullness when Jesus returns, right? His second coming, everything will be redeemed and restored. And those who have rejected Jesus, they will still be reconciled. (laughs) They'll fall on the wrong side of the ledger. But what can we take hold of right now? As we sit here in this room, look at the end of verse 20. Making peace by the blood of his cross. The word peace is really important. We can have peace with God. We were under the wrath of God, and rightfully so, because of our sin. But on the cross, God poured out the entire bucketful of His wrath on Jesus for your sin, if you will believe. He no longer stands against you because of your sin. Because in Christ, God has declared from the cross, peace. When Jesus said, it is finished, do you know what he meant? (laughs) That it is finished. He's brought us back to himself. And our only part in that peace treaty with God is just accepting it. Can we receive the final and full forgiveness of Christ for all of our sin? You can have peace with God right now. Still, I think for some of us, that's a struggle, right? Uh, I mean, I know myself, I know my sins. And maybe you're thinking, you hear this and you think, well, but I believe that for them, for someone else. But there's that one sin. We all have that one, don't we? At least one that we just can't get over. It just sticks to us. We think about it from time to time, and we wish we we wouldn't, but we can't help it. Usually it's, at least for me, it's when I wake up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep, and there it is. What do we do with that? What has God, the better question, what has God done with that? He has paid for it on the cross of Christ. Not in part, in full. He has forgiven it on the cross of Christ. 
Yes, by that sin and your many others, you disconnected yourself from God. But by the blood of Jesus, God reconnected you to himself and he's not letting go. He's not holding it over you. You're the only one still thinking about it. But you can let it go. You are forgiven. It's not only now as if you never did sin that great sin. It's now actually as if you've always obeyed, just like Jesus. He goes that far. Not just to give us a clean slate, but to give us His fullness of obedience. That's the great exchange. You are loved like Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus' sake. You are as secure as Christ is. But the gospel is bigger than just me and you as well. And we're going to land this plane here. Christ is reconciling all things to himself. The Bible says that one day, we see this in the book of Revelation, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, which indicates to me creatures, not just people, and all that is in them will say to him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Isaiah says, The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. I don't know how trees clap their hands. Maybe there are really ints in the world, you Lord of the Rings fans. I, I don't know. Whatever that looks like, I can't wait to see it. Can you? In Christ, this broken world will be restored better than before as he reconciles all things to himself. There is nothing in this world so broken that Jesus can't mend it. That's what it means to say he's a redeemer. Jesus fixes things. He restores things. He renews things. Because he is Lord over all things, and all things are being reconciled to himself. He is God, and he will bring this to pass. So, thanks for staring at Jesus with me this morning. <laughs> He's pretty good, huh? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We start there. Who you are, Lord, thank you. And for what you've done for people like us. Lord, let us never get over your glory. Let us never get bored looking at you. Continue to show us more and more of yourself day by day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.